Thank you, worship team, and good morning, you clock setters. Good for you, unless you think you're here for the second service. Take your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 6, 2 Kings 6, page 295, using our scriptures here. As we open the Word of God each week, we are convinced of two things. Number one, God is real. Number two, this book reveals God to us. But none of us have ever seen him. Unapologetically, we are worshiping him this morning. Enthusiastically, we are worshiping him this morning, but we've never seen him. Because we worship a God who, though he is invisible, he is completely real, and he is at work. And we want to think about that this morning. The scripture tells us that uh, in Exodus, Moses wanted to see God, wanted to... God to reveal himself, and God said, well, actually, you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. There's a reason God's invisible. It would destroy us to see God in his glory. John, as he was explaining Jesus, says, no one has ever seen God, and then he went on to say, that's why he sent Jesus, because, of course, Jesus is God and revealed us and what God is like through his miracles and through his person and ultimately through his love on the cross. But you can't see God. Or Paul wrote to Timothy, God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light whom no one has seen or can see. We can't see God, but he is entirely real. The amazing thing is that this glorious God who exists in this unapproachable light and glory where we could not survive, nonetheless is at work. And what we've seen in these past couple of weeks is how God is personally caring for and involved in the details of our life. So he is unapproachable and invisible in his glory in one sense, and yet he is doing very tangible, real things. Last week we saw how he raised an axe from the bottom of the Jordan River to help a guy who lost an axe. And God is involved in our lives. As we've been studying in 2 Kings, these particular chapters, 2 through 8, are actually like a a portfolio of the miracles uh, that that Elisha performed. Uh, Every miracle was God doing something unseen but physical for his people. And the encouragement we should go away with today is that God is still at work seeking to help you, and he's at work in invisible ways. We're going to see four of them today. So let's pick it up in chapter 6, verse uh, 8. Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, that's the king of Aram, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God, that's Elisha, sent word to the king of Israel, that's the opposing king, The man of God, Elisha, sent word to the king of Israel, beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, will you not tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord, the king 
said one of his officers. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. So how is God protecting Israel at this point? He is revealing something, information, military intel to Elisha who passes it on to his king, the king of Israel. It's a fun story, isn't it, to, to realize how this is happening? This war that's going on is, is maybe not a full-scale war. Maybe it seems to be a little bit more like uh, Aram is sending raiding parties into Israel. If you go to the very end of our passage today, the last line of verse 23. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. Uh, back in chapter 5, if you were with us, you recall there were these kind of raids made on Israel. That's how this young Jewish girl ended up a slave in the household of Naaman, the commander of the Aramean army. And God providentially put her there so that she could tell Naaman about the God of Israel who could heal him of his leprosy, and, and that all came to fruition. So God had a purpose, but now God is graciously telling uh, Elisha, the military secrets of Aram, so he can stop these raids. God wasn't doing this because the king of Israel was so godly, because he wasn't. We aren't sure which king this was, but they were all the kings of the northern kingdom were ungodly, wicked men, we find in, in Second Kings. So it wasn't for the sake of the king, but remember there are godly people throughout Israel. Uh, like the Shunammite woman that we've met, or, or the, the prophet families, or I'm sure many others. And so God is protecting many and telling Elisha, they're going to be here, they're going to be there. And uh, so it takes the whole surprise element off of this, this military effort of Aram. Nothing's working, and so he's enraged, it says. And he's convinced there's a mole somehow in his, in his administration, but... Uh, one of them finally, maybe they found it out later, said, <clears throat> actually, King, I'm hearing that Elisha knows everything you say. You know, this has been a very good place for the king of Aram to go, oh, the true God of Israel, the one who sees all and knows all, I need to worship him. But he doesn't. And to his own peril, he completely ignores that and he'll proceed to try to get Elisha. So, so how did this work that uh, God was revealing this to Elisha? I, I kind of like to think through, you know, mechanically or, or, or visually or audibly, how did this work? It could have been a number of ways. We know that God revealed things sometimes in dreams and visions. But frankly, I, I picture more that, that God was audibly speaking to his prophet. Uh, in, in prior to the completion of Scripture, God had many prophets, and God simply told these prophets things. So God says something like, Elisha, the next ambush is south of Shunem by the big rock cliff. Elisha hears it, sends a message to the king of Israel, who, by the way, is a godless man, and this doesn't convince him. But he nonetheless follows the advice, and he is protected. God kept them safe through his revealed word. How does God work to keep us safe today? He cares about things like safety, like you do. 
You care for your family, he cares for his family. How does he keep us safe today? Uh, God is still using his revealed word to teach us by principle primarily how to live very, very safely. The psalmist said, I will never forget your precepts for by them you have preserved my life. Just knowing how life works spares, rescues me from death. Your commands are always with me and make me wiser than my enemies. So when we have opponents, it's almost embarrassing to see some of the brawls or punching that takes place in the sports world, right? Um, Or how many times Americans have have let their views escalate to the place of of violence and and law-breaking. But you know, if even... Even if we as Christians are persecuted directly for our faith in Christ, will we, have, will we be wiser than our enemies? Will we have the common sense to, to walk away from certain things that would not glorify Christ? Wiser than our enemies? Or Proverbs. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for... Or because length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Of course, the book of Proverbs is filled with practical wisdom. This is how to live life. Many times, live life safely. Or jump to the New Testament and realize that we as believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And if you're, if you're filled with the Spirit, you don't get drunk. Ephesians 5.18. And people die on the highways. They walk into rivers under the influence, drugs, alcohol, promiscuous behavior, smoking, overeating. There's a lot of ways in which we simply ignore principles of the Word of God, and it, it creates accidents and illness and damage to vital organs, not to mention the damaged relationships. There are so many ways in which just simply God's Word guides us to better, safer, longer living. God is protecting us through his word. He protected Israel by telling these things to Elisha, who told them to the king of Israel, verse 13. But now we have an enraged king of Aram, verse 13. Go find out where he is, the king ordered. Now, this would have been a good time to say, I'm going to kind of avoid fighting this nation. No, go find where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back. He is in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. I I take it he he greatly expands this war, escalates to where he sends a large force, it's saying. They went by night and surrounded the city. So let's get a little picture of this. The two parts of The nation of the Jews is now divided north and south, called Israel and Judah. But now it's the enemy to the north of Israel, Aram, that is fighting. And they are now sending these forces to go get Elisha, who uh, their reconnaissance says is in Dothan. They surround the city. Uh, Keep just note of this. It's about 10 miles north of Samaria, which will come into the story a little bit later. He's, He's in Dothan. So... In spite of knowing that Elisha has the ability for supernatural intel, he still does it. And stubbornly, he is ignoring God. Bad move. 
He's not a God to be ignored. So if you enjoyed uh, kind of seeing how God was revealing information to Elisha, you'll, you'll appreciate the second way God is protecting Israel. When the servant, verse 15, when the servant of the man of God, so Elisha's servant, got up and went out early the next morning, an army, this the Aramean army, with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Number one answer, don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And so that kind of starts his mind bust. What do you mean? It's you and me. And Elisha prayed, O oh Lord, open his eyes so he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes in a special way, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So the, the servant of Elisha said, what shall we do? He's terrified because he sees what is there. The, the natural, the human enemy, the large force surrounding the city. Elisha, we're all going to die. We're going we're to assume this servant was a believer. We don't know if this was Gehazi, uh, who, the servant we've met previously. Um, and we'll see later on in our study that, that uh, these miracles are not in chronological order. So it could have been him, but it doesn't matter. But uh, he responds like any unbeliever, though he is a believer, and don't we all? Our first instinct to anything frightening is fear. Uh, most of us, a lot of us remember 9-11, fear of terrorism. Remember two years ago, fear of virus, we fear criminals or politicians or anybody we perceive as against us. Our first response is fear. Is that our persistent and perpetual state? Do not be afraid, Elisha tells his servant. It'd be interesting to do a study of how many times do you find that in Scripture? Do not be afraid. Fear is a natural response. Do not be afraid is a supernatural response. Are we living supernaturally is the question. So Elisha prayed. This is actually the first of three prayers in this passage today. But uh, Elisha's prayer in verse 17, in a sense, is teaching us how to pray for ourselves in time of fear and really how to pray for other believers around us who are in fear. Open his eyes that he may see. Of course, this was a specific thing. They saw angels. But do we believe in the invisible help of God? Do we believe that God is real? Do we believe the word of God? Do we believe the promises of God? Do we turn to him? Do we urge one another to turn to him in times of fear? If you don't know how to help someone who's in fear, Pray for them about their fear. Don't just pray about the circumstance. Pray about their need to trust God. Open his eyes. And in this unique moment, God revealed to this servant a very real angelic army. Hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. 
can imagine his jaw dropping, the serpent. I had no idea. Now we, as we've been reading 2 Kings, we've had an idea of this because back in chapter 2, verse 11, when God took Elijah, the predecessor of Elisha, took him to heaven, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. It was an angelic escort to heaven. So we know who this is. It's, it's angels. Billy Graham wrote a book years ago called Angels, God's Secret Agents. Well put. Go through scripture, you find so many different roles that angels play in serving God. Of course, many are around the throne worshiping him, especially you see this in the book of Revelation. But you see them impacting uh, nations politically in the book of Daniel or affecting physical, natural world, uh, battling spiritually. Um, angels are, are sent as well, though, to guard and protect people, believers on earth. Guardian angels are a biblical thing. Now, as you picture what God might do through angels, make sure that you are thinking biblically. Uh, the movie It's a Wonderful Life is a wonderful movie, probably not a great place to get theology. Um, the most common egregious false belief that people have is that people become angels when they die. It doesn't say that anywhere in the Word of God. People are people forever. Angels are angels forever. We don't become angels. There's no little bell either. God created the entire spirit realm. He created all things good. He didn't create the angels. They aren't in the day, six days of creation. They were created before Job 38.7. They were created before, it seems, so that God would have an audience to glorify him as he created everything else. He created all to be good angels, and they were until the chief of angels, Satan, rebelled against God. A story told in a prophetic sense in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. He rebelled against God, and with him, many of the angels fell. So they are now called Satan's angels or demons, Revelation 12. And so we now have, indeed, a spiritual battle, unseen world in which there is competition and God yet is sovereign over all those things and God is at work and God is ultimately and fully in charge. But God is using angels now and many times to protect people, most interestingly, children. God protects children. Matthew 18.10, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. So Jesus was, was uh, talking in a crowd, and he calls a little child, and that little child is standing there, and he says, this is an example of the kind of, 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 of young children that God is taking care of through angels assigned to them. What a wonderful gift to parents to know that our children are not only in our care. Our children are in God's care. Isn't it amazing how, they, how, they, how many children survive childhood, right? All the things they go through. But it's not just children. Adults 
as well. Believers are protected. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation, serve or help in many different ways? And we have no idea what ways or how often this has happened because they are generally unseen. God protects us. Our lifespan is, is already determined. We know Psalm 139. We looked at that last week. That God knows the number of days that we have. And we are to follow biblical principles of safety and health. But then ultimately the final line of defense, it seems, is that God also can use angels to protect us at critical moments like he did here. Invisibly. Usually unknowingly. So many angel events throughout Scripture are recorded. Angels came uh, to talk to Abraham and Sarah and reveal that indeed God was going to answer uh, or keep his promise to give them uh, a baby in their old age. Genesis 18. Genesis 19, two of those angels are the ones who rescue Lot from the city of Sodom and Gomorrah before God destroys it. Genesis 23, an angel came to Hagar, who's out in the desert Uh, starving and without water with her young son Ishmael and an angel shows them in a well so they can get water. An angel, or it could have even been uh, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, uh, what uh, the passage that Eric read earlier about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There was someone else in that fire. Could have been an angelic presence. Daniel 6 An angel shut the lion's mouth to preserve him so that they would not eat him. An angel woke Peter when he was in prison and loosed his chains and walked him out of the prison. Acts chapter 12. Unaware by us in most cases. Sometimes they were visible, sometimes they were not. In this case, it was just Elisha and his servant who got to see these angels. God's at work helping, protecting. He uses his word. He uses angels. And he uses prayer. Two more prayers of of Elisha as we continue reading. So the servant is very afraid. They get to see the angels of all around them. But verse 18 starts with this. As the enemy came toward him, Elisha prayed. So if you picture this kind of like a a film version. In spite of knowing the angels are there, the enemy is still coming at you. Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike these people with blindness. Strike the army with blindness. So he struck them with blindness as Elisha asked. That's about as concise of an answer to prayer as you can get. Elisha told them, so now you have an entirely blind army. Elisha told them, this is not the road and this is not the city. Follow me and I will lead you to the man you are looking for. And he led them to Samaria. And they entered the city. After they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so they can see. Then the Lord opened their eyes and they looked and they were inside Samaria. Enjoyable, isn't it, to see what, what God does? This is the showdown at uh, the Dothan Corral, and angels were present, but Elisha didn't know what they would do, what God would do. 
doesn't even seem that God delivered him through angels. There's another story later on we'll come across, 2 Kings 19, where they're fighting the Assyrians, not Arameans, but Assyrians. And an angel of the Lord comes and strikes 185,000 Assyrians dead during the night. God can do it with angels, but does God always deliver us through angels? Is that how God would do it? Elisha didn't know, so he prayed. Do, do, Elijah, do, do angels protect us every time? They do not. In fact, angels did not protect Jesus when he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. So the night before the cross, an interesting conversation as Judas betrays Jesus and they, he leads the soldiers into the garden where he knew Jesus would be. It says the men stepped forward and seized Jesus and arrested him. And with that, one of, the, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. It was Peter who did it. And another uh, uh, gospel says that Jesus healed the ear. But that's not even the point here. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. This isn't God's time for fighting. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? A legion in the Roman army was anywhere from three to 6,000. If it were 6,000, Jesus is saying, I could have called 72,000 angels like that and this would all be over. Peter, this, this is not a matter of, of, of lacking resources. This is a matter of trusting God's sovereign plan. And God's sovereign plan was not my deliverance here in this garden. So do we trust God's sovereign plan or presume that we know God's sovereign plan? We don't control when angels step in. We don't control when prayers are answered. God does. So as the army of Aram comes down towards Elisha, he simply prays, and he prays something very specific, strike them with blindness, and God does it. This time God does it, exactly as he asked. So I'm kind of picturing, you know, several hundred, maybe up to a thousand soldiers. I don't know what size contingent uh, the king of Aram sent, maybe more. And uh, they are suddenly blind, but this blindness seems to be not only a visual blindness, but a mental blindness of some sort. Uh, because Elisha says to them, uh, wrong road, wrong city, follow me, wrong man, I'll lead you to the man. And he led them to Samaria. By the way, notice this is a divinely authorized lie. It is wartime, right? It, 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 God's method was to enable this protective deception. So the, the armed forces of Iran, Aram are suddenly blind and confused and they follow Elisha 10 miles south to Samaria. I picture them kind of like, you know, if you take a class of little children to a museum and you're walking down a sidewalk and maybe have the buddy system, they're all holding hands and they just kind of hopefully meekly follow the teacher. And these well-armed Assyrian soldiers are reduced to this humiliating process. And, and they get taken to Samaria. Why Samaria? Samaria is the capital. That's where the 
king of Israel is. Because this is going to be a message of, of, of who God is and what God does to the king of, uh, of Israel as well as Aram. And so now when, when he prays again, open the eyes of these men. Now their, 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 their ability to see as well as their ability to think, and it all hits them like, we, are, we had surrounded a city, now we're surrounded in a city. And God had completely turned the tables on them. Why did God answer these prayers? Number one, to protect Elisha. We get that. That's the most obvious. He answered prayers to protect Elisha, but he also answered prayer to advertise himself. To the king of Israel, to the king of Aram, and to to however many hundreds of soldiers there may have been there that day, they could ignore God no longer. We know that God changed the heart of the commander of Aram, Aram's army, Naaman, at a previous time, we assume. Did he change the hearts of some Aramean soldiers that day? God's at work showing himself, protecting Elisha, but also promoting himself because he's all about the glory of God. Providentially, we're studying about war here for a few weeks during a time of war that is on our front pages. We don't know God's will. That's part of how we must pray, but we must pray that God would be glorified. Glorified in Russia, glorified in Ukraine. Uh, I've gotten emails forwarded to me from people, missionaries in the countries there. You've maybe seen or heard or seen videos to the same effect of the worshipers. Are we praying for God to be glorified in some powerful way? Because I expect to hear at some point how the church is flourishing. We read of of amazing spiritual victories, whatever the outcome, to know that God is at work and he will be answering prayer so that he is most glorified. We pray for safety. God granted safety. It's the right thing to pray. But we pray ultimately for the glory of God. James 5. Elijah, the predecessor, is described here by James in the New Testament. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being just as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Elijah was an instrument of justice uh, of God against King Ahab specifically and his uh, pagan wife Jezebel as well. And Elijah prayed that it would be a drought, and it was three and a half years of drought. Certainly got Ahab's attention, attention, ending in the contest at Mount Carmel, uh, latter part of First Kings. But then he prayed at the end of that that it would rain, and it rained. And, and James's point is, yes, he was a prophet, but he was a human being, and he prayed, and God answered. And so we pray. We pray. We pray, first of all, it says, the prayer of a righteous person. That, that's clarifying. 
Because isn't the essence of godliness to want the will of God? Isn't the, isn't the core issue then of prayer not that we would conform God's will to ours, but that we would conform our will to his? So is God always, through prayer, shaping our will? We need to pray with spiritual wisdom about the obvious thing. Our illnesses, our burdens, our relationships, our fears, our depression, what, whatever it might be. We pray, I'm sure at the beginning, the starting point of prayer is our need and that calls us to him. But then we begin to get the spiritual insights to go, so God, what are you doing in me? What are you doing in the person I'm, I'm burdened for? And then God begins to work. The story isn't over because Israel now has hundreds, if not a thousand or more, enemy soldiers inside their capital city. Terrified, I'm sure they are. The army is humiliated. They can't ignore God. They've, God has shown to us that he reveals things. He sent, has angels. He answers prayer. But there is one more way that God will work here, and perhaps it is the most powerful means of all that God is working consistently. He works as he humbles people through grace. Grace. Verse 21, when the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, who had brought them, right? Shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? Do not kill them, he answered. Would you kill men you have captured with your own sword or bow? Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. And after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away and they returned to their master. What was the impact? So the bands, of the, of, so the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. God had worked through divine intel and angels and prayer, but maybe the most powerful thing he did was that showing grace to these soldiers transformed them. They stayed away. Grace. Would you kill men you've captured with your own sword? Of he, I think he's referring to the uh, articles of war, whether they were written or not, that you kill enemy combatants in battle, but you don't kill your POWs. So, so don't, don't destroy them. That's, that's not God's plan. In fact, God's plan was to show them grace. Not, it starts out, it looks like food and water, but they said, no, make a great big feast. And they all get full tummies, and they're sent home having to reckon with a God who is more powerful, and yet he's a God of grace. Ah, the Bible is revealing God to us again and teaching us a whole lot about how we should respond to the challenges, to the hurts, to the burdens that we carry. Grace is transforming. Paul was writing to the Roman church, church in Rome, at a time of persecution. Christianity was not popular. Here's what he said. 
Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Deuteronomy 32. On the contrary, now quoting Proverbs, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. That's what they did for the the army of Aram, right? In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We've all wanted to heap burning coals on someone's head probably at some point. I don't think that's what it means. Um, it's an it's a, it's a interesting phrase. The closest we can come is that in, in these times, it, at least it's been found in Egypt, that when somebody wanted to demonstrate repentance and remorse, they publicly walked with a pan of burning coals on their head, indicating their change of heart. Is that what he's saying? That by, by showing grace to our enemies... God can actually do this invisible work of transforming their heart. That's enemies. What if it's what if it's other believers in the church? We were in 2 Timothy studying right recently, and Paul was saying, even when it's false teaching, he says. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of truth. So even when you've got to confront sin, when you have to confront a false teaching, gently instruct that God can grant repentance because there is incredible power when you show God's grace. Because that's what changed you and me. Because all of grace flows from the cross. Anything transforming in our lives has happened because of what Christ did for us on the cross. And then that is to filter down into many, many relationships and situations as well. And so God is reassuring us by what he did in Israel. It's interesting to think back when the books of First and Second Kings were first read and taught somewhere. First and Second Kings, one book originally, ends about 300 years after this. So there's a lot more history to go, many kings and generations and centuries actually. <clears throat> the book of Second Kings ends with Israel during that time of exile when they had been taken captive in Babylon. We don't know for sure who wrote First and Second Kings, perhaps Ezra or Ezekiel or somebody who brought together all those historical records and put it all down. And, and it seems like the first setting where they would have read and studied as we are is when the Jewish people are in a foreign country thinking back that their city has been burned and the walls have been pushed over and their temple where they, their relatives, at least, their ancestors had worshipped God was destroyed. And they could think, have we been abandoned? Is there any hope for us? And somebody in the spiritual leadership of those exiles reads what we've read today. 
so that they would be assured, even though maybe the answer to their prayers were still some years ahead before they would be going back to Israel and rebuilding the temple and rebuilding those walls, Ezra and Nehemiah. But, but there was hope because there always is hope because of the invisible power of God who is at work over and over. As Christians, we may be struggling sometimes just looking at the news, right? What is, what is the future? What is God doing? What are your fears? We look at, be it our country or morals or politics, or we look at antagonism towards uh, Christians, and we can be those who fear. Or we can be those who take a look at Scripture and go, mostly I want to know who God is and what He is like, and that He can direct my heart for, for praying, trusting, seeking His will, waiting many times and knowing that he is nonetheless working however invisibly. When Jesus talked to Nicodemus about the new life that comes through faith in Christ, he said it's kind of like the wind. You don't see the wind, but you see what the wind does. It has power. And it's likewise today we've seen the effect that God works through his word invisibly. It changes our lives. He works through angels invisibly, often unknown. He answers prayer invisibly. And he certainly works as we show grace to those around us who need it so much. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you again this morning, submitting to your word, uh, letting you by your spirit teach us where to adjust our mindset, our worldview, our desires our opinions, so we come before you and expect that you would be teaching us about reality in your presence. Lord, we just ask that you would shape us, work in our sphere of living in freedom and prosperity, and for those dear believers around the world who are not, whether it's Russia and Ukraine or so many countries where there is not those kind of, kind of benefits that we enjoy. But we ask you that you would enable us all to, as a body of Christ around the world, reach out to you, trusting you, and seeking your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.